I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless, or when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that's worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. That's Psalm 101, which along with 109 are the Psalms appointed for today, Wednesday, September the 29th, 2021. Thanks for listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I appreciate it very much. Um, we are continuing our look at the kings of the, the nation. In 2 Kings 18, verses 9 to 25, we are still in the first epistle of Paul to the Corinthian church, chapter 8, the first 13 verses, and in the gospel according to Matthew, the seventh chapter, beginning at the 13th verse and continuing through verse 21. So what we've got is is that Hezekiah, remember he was a good guy, did all the things that David did. He restored the worship and all that kind of stuff. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel. So there remained a, a sort of a remnant of the northern kingdom at that point. But Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it, Samaria being the northern kingdom. And at the end of three years, he took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken, gone, completely gone. Those ten tribes are no more. The king of Assyria then carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They neither listened nor obeyed. Now, that's not the king of Assyria's rationale for doing that. His rationale was simply to get rid of them. And he takes them in and moves them out and, and assimilates them into these other places where they can be neutralized and there'd be no worship of the Lord there. What, what that statement is, because they didn't obey the voice of the Lord, is the Lord gave them over to the king of Assyria in this time. So now, 10 years after this lesson begins, which is the fourth year of Hezekiah, in the sixth year was when it, when the northern kingdom fell. So now we're eight years past that. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Why did he do it? Well, it's because Hezekiah had formed an alliance with the Egyptians for protection. So he, it was a protection racket that he was paying the Egyptians for. There, there's an implied rebuke in that he forgot the Lord is God and that he looked to the Egyptian nation for, um, for protection against the Assyrian, the mighty Assyrian Empire, which was truly ascendant at this time. So... <clears throat> Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I've done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I'll bear. In other words, I, I shouldn't have trusted the Egyptians. I shouldn't have gone behind your back and formed the alliance with them. I should have trusted you. Yeah, not so much. That's not exactly the message here, but at, but at this point, he's afraid. You've got a fearful king 
who says, I'll do anything you want me to do. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So Hezekiah didn't have that in his treasury. So what does he do? He gives him all the silver found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. What had happened to all the wealth that Solomon had acquired? Where had that gone? How had that been lost during this period of time from Solomon to Hezekiah? At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorpost that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. So remember, in the first month of Hezekiah's reign, 14 years before, he had restored and repaired the doors of the temple. And now here we are 14 years later, and he is removing the gold that he had overlaid on the doors of the temple in order to meet the tribute price demanded by the king of Assyria. And so then the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshaki with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem, and they went up and came to Jerusalem. When they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the washer's field. And when they called for the king, they came. there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. So they come out, and they come to this place where the upper pool, the pool in Jerusalem, is fed. So there's water, fresh water, piped into Jerusalem through this conduit, and that's exactly where they come to meet them. And so the Rabshaki said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours, trust being in Egypt? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? Just because they promised to do something, do you think that's the same thing as being actually prepared for it? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you're trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff that will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. Don't trust him, you fool. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? They, they didn't have a sense of who God was and that there was only one place for him to be worshipped. They, they mistook the removal of the altars and the high places for worship of Yahweh. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, it's without the Lord that I've come up against this place to destroy it. The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So there's this threat that the king of Assyria has. He's already taken the northern kingdom, and now he comes down here to Hezekiah and says, you're nothing. Your alliance with Egypt won't save you from me. The, what has happened here? What happened to Hezekiah's faith? How did he come to this place where he's now trusting in a foreign power for his protection rather than the, the, the fear of the Lord to protect him? Has he lost that faith? Jesus, in the gospel today, says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And, and we're called to, to take the difficult path, the difficult path of obedience, the difficult path of, of 
trusting him and following him and obeying him in all things. That's what we're called to as Christians. That's the narrow gate that leads to life. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus says this is not hard stuff. You Just watch. Just look at the fruit. When, when false prophets, when a prophet comes to you, look at them. And that's what Paul uh, tells the church to do when he writes the epistles to Timothy. He talks about the, the qualifications of overseers, the qualifications of deacons. And he says, look at their fruit. Look at who they are. Look at the evidence of their lives to see whether or not these are people you should actually follow or not. And so he calls on the people to, to pay attention. So yesterday we read that he said, judge not that you be not judged. But here he tells us to judge. But, but he's telling us to judge by a very simple standard. What do their lives look like? Can you consider them prophets? I had a friend um, years ago who, who considered herself to be a prophet, and I believe that at one point in time she was a prophet. But the problem was, by the time that I got to know her, she had separated herself from everybody else and was angry with the world, angry with the leaders in the church, angry with everybody because at some point in time she had given a word and nobody had listened to her. And, it's, and so the fruit of her life had become a, a life in turmoil and a life that, that was at enmity with many others in the church, other people who were prophetically gifted with the church itself, with the leadership in the church, with her husband, with her daughter, with all these people. And so when we're, when we're called to evaluate a prophet, what, what Jesus is saying, we're called to evaluate their lives and see if there's evidence in their lives that the Lord's blessing and, and bringing good fruit. And I hate to say what happened to her. It, it, it was an ugly thing, and it got uglier and uglier as time went along. But there was a reason that she had to be set aside as a prophet, because her life didn't bear witness to the blessing of God. And then he finishes up with, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. And so how can we make this believism? How do we twist that statement right there to say, all you got to do is believe. you got to say the sinner's prayer. you got to have faith once in your life and be baptized, and that's enough. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. So when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then the first place that begins is with you. It begins with you doing the will of my Father who is in heaven. And, and we've got to be recalled to that. We have to be the people whose lives show that we believe these things are true and that they're best for us. We've got to live in accordance with those dictates and the commandments of God in order that the world can see what it looks like when the kingdom of God comes on earth. And then in the First Corinthians passage, now concerning food, offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. I mean, there's a truth in that. That's it, Paul's saying, I'm not speaking about Gnosticism here. I'm not speaking about some special knowledge. 
that's here. We all possess knowledge, but he's saying also knowledge is not the most important thing. He says the knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And so the the most important thing, he says, which we were getting at yesterday as well, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So, again, we go back to this believism thing. It's not a matter of just believing. Do you love God? It's sort of a measure of, are you known by God? And do we love him, and how do we show that we love him? Well, we obey his commandments. We worship him. We do the things that he's called us to do. We don't forsake the worship. We don't forsake his commandments. He says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, which is something that was uh, commanded that the Gentiles not do in the Acts 15 Jerusalem Council, we know that, quote, an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. In other words, we know that an idol is nothing more than an idol. He's not a god. It's just an idol. That's all it is. It has no power. It has no reality. It has no corporeality or being. He says, although there may be many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, things that are called that, things that are worshipped as though they were, yet for us there's one God, the Father, from whom all are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. We all know this, right? We all know that. We all possess that knowledge that these things aren't real. There's only one true God. He says, but not all actually possess this knowledge. And to possess the knowledge is more than just knowing. Possessing the knowledge, the way it's that, that Paul expresses it here, is to possess it by holding it fast and knowing that there's nothing else, not wavering in that belief. To possess the knowledge is to have it holy and complete. He says, but some, through former association with idols, eat food is really offered to an idol. So even though they've made some sort of profession of faith, they still haven't fully let go of that former belief. And so when they eat that food, they still at some level receive it that way. And their conscience being weak is defiled. So so they're put into a place where, where they're practicing both religions simultaneously. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we don't eat and no better off if we do. And he's, he's beginning to build the argument here with that statement. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so he says that, that, that this one who used to worship idols but is now coming into faith, which is not fully matured, when that one sees you eating in an idol's temple, he doesn't know what you know. He's still weak. And so he sees you doing this, and now he sees, oh, it's okay for me as well. Well, no, it's not. You might exercise your freedom because you know this is truly nothing, but he's not fully convinced, doesn't possess the knowledge yet that that idol is nothing. 
Paul sees a, a, a movement here. It's called sanctification, right? Where we move further and further away from our old belief system into the belief that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but by him, and that there's nothing other than him in the universe who is truly a God. He says, so by your knowledge, this weak person is now destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. You're to blame for his downfall by the exercise of your freedom. You may be right in that this is okay for you because this thing's not really a God, but but being right isn't the important thing. It's loving God first and loving the brother in Christ, the one for whom he died. And so if you, by, by using your license to do these things, if you make it then possible that this other one falls by doing exactly the same thing, but by worshiping that idol at the same time, then you're to blame for his downfall. You sin against Christ is what Paul's argument is. And he says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Whatever it is that, 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 that keeps my brother from stumbling by my actions— I won't do. I, those are things that are just preferences to me, Paul says. And so I'm willing to give these up if those things make my brother stumble. He's not speaking here about vegetarianism, by the way. He, he's talking about the meat that's been sacrificed to idols. He said, I won't eat anything, any meat anymore, because I can't know that it's sacrificed to an idol if it makes my brother stumble. But he's specifically talking about doing so in the temple of an idol eating something that's been sacrificed to idol in the temple of that idol. That's the immediate context for what Paul's talking about. The thing is, is that we've got to have everything focused on the Lord, but then that forces us to consider how we love our brothers and sisters, those who are creating the image of God, as loving the Lord. We can truly love him only to the extent that we also love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we've got to lay aside all our trust in anything else in order that our trust would be solely in God.